So growing up in Israel, my guest pal Ben Shahar, he wanted to be the best squash player, not just in the country, but in the world. And he turned pro at a pretty young age and quickly rose up the ranks. Then this weird thing happened. He achieved his dream. But then he crashed hard, realizing it didn't make him feel how he thought he would feel. And that experience set in motion this lifelong sort of quest into the science of happiness that led him eventually to study in the United States at Harvard and eventually teach what became the most popular course at Harvard on happiness. Tal is now a best-selling author and lecturer, working with executives and multinational corporations, everyday humans and at-risk populations, exploring everything from leadership, happiness, education, innovation, ethics, self-esteem, resilience, goal setting, and mindfulness. His books have been translated into more than 25 languages and have appeared on bestseller lists around the world. Tal is also a serial entrepreneur and is most recently the co-founder and chief learning officer of Happiness Studies Academy, which is all about bringing together the thinking of the world's leading scholars and the latest scientific research on happiness, and then educating and training leaders who are themselves really dedicated to personal, interpersonal, and communal flourishing. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Growing up, I know um, it seems like squash for you was really um, the thing that was not just a passion, but almost an, an obsession. Uh, very much so. You know, I remember um, when I was 16 years old and uh, very, very much into squash, waking up one morning and having the following thought, which was, uh, what will I do with my life when I no longer play squash? Because, uh, you know, at least as a professional athlete, you know that you have uh, um, quite a short uh, half-life. 
And um, I thought, what, what, what will I do when I'm you know, 30 or 35 uh, with my life? And of course, my decision was then, you know, I will become a coach. I thought of becoming the, you know, the Israeli national coach at, at, at that time, but could not see my life without it. Mm. The notion of you as a 16-year-old thinking about what comes next, before you had actually sort of like stepped into the ultimate, you know, like what you were aspiring to do, is an unusual thought process for, I think, any 16-year-old. Yeah, you know, um, there are certain people who are more uh, inclined to uh, a reflection or rumination. Uh, I'm certainly one of them. I think uh, among psychologists, there is a disproportionate uh, amount of number of them. And, um, you know, it's both a, a blessing and a curse. So, you know, Socrates, the father of Western philosophy, once said that the unexamined life is not worth living. Uh, but I have to add a second part to that sentence, which is that the over-examined life is tedious. Um, and uh, I certainly have fallen into the trap of tedium uh, throughout, throughout my life, also when I was 16. <laughs> yeah, which is sort of an interesting tell just about, um, and, a, and almost like a little bit of foreshadowing as to what would come over a period of years. I know you rose up, as you mentioned, you had this huge aspiration to be at the top of the squash world and to really be, I guess, the Israeli national champion. And you did it, you know, you, you actually, you know, you put in the work, you rose up the ranks, you did what you came to do, but it seems like that was a bit of a double-edged sword for you. Yeah, it was because uh, it brought home uh, at that time uh, a very surprising Truth. So specifically for many years while I was training and playing, I, I wasn't happy, uh, but worse than that, I, I constantly felt stressed. Uh, there was uh, a knot in my stomach, which was always there and wouldn't, well, it went away once in a while when, whenever I you know, won a, a big match or uh, when I had the near perfect uh, training session. Um, but, but it was rare and the norm was, uh, was the not. However, I always, uh, believed, in fact, I was, I was certain that that not would go away once I achieve my goal, once I, uh, I reach my dream, which at that time was to be the national champion. And, uh, I got there and I realized when I got there that there was no there there. Meaning for the first uh, few hours, I felt elation, probably happier than I'd ever been, certainly up to that point. However, within a few hours, the same knot returned and the elation that I felt just uh, a short while earlier turned into real deep despair because uh, the model that, that gave me hope for so many years that, you know, this will be over, you know, the, the pain, the, and again, I'm, I'm not even, I'm not talking about the pain of training hard. That was trivial by comparison, you know? Yeah. So you're tired, you're sore. That's the life of a professional athlete. Um, but the, the, the physical pain with a psychological cause, I mean, that, that was unbearable. And especially once I realized that it won't go away, uh, once I fulfilled my dream, and um, the thing, though, is that very quickly I went into uh, the next stage, which for me was, okay, so what I have to do now in order to get rid of this knot is win the, the, the world championship, because the national championship obviously is not enough. It's not a hive enough aspiration. Uh, 
and I started again, like Sisyphus. You know, the, 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 the stone was rolled down the mountain and I had to climb a, a steeper mountain. It wasn't a, the, the same incline. So again, for years, I, I aspired to become the world champion, uh, believing that winning that would, uh, uh, would alleviate the discomfort, dis-ease. Uh, I never got to win, to, to win the, the world championship. I won a few international championships, but got injured at a relatively young age uh, in a career-ending injury. But uh, I replaced that uh, s uh, squash aspiration with uh, different ones. And specifically, initially at least, it was, okay, get into a, a top college, you know, get into Harvard, uh, which I did. And then it's get, you know, get a great, uh, get the, you know, the best grades and then get the, uh, you know, get into, uh, get a good job and on and on. And at some point, I just realized that uh, I probably had it wrong. You know, that it's not about the external. It's not about achieving that, this or that uh, milestone. That it was more about me changing my perception, the internal rather than the external world. And that's when I turned to psychology. Yeah, I mean, it occurs to me um, listening to your story and also sort of folding that in with so many conversations I've had over the years with people who have sacrificed so much of their lives to rise to meet this one expectation of being the best of the best in any domain or whatever that internal or familial or societal, you know, like definition of success was, and then met it and immediately after fell into this anywhere from malaise to really deep depression. It was interesting. I talked to a former Olympian um, not too long ago who actually meddled. She did exactly what she came to do and went into a very, very dark place after, and then started talking to her friends who were all other fellow Olympians and noticed an astonishing prevalence of this same exact phenomenon. And I'm curious, you describe it as almost this existential feeling of, okay, what now? Like that didn't give me the feeling I wanted to feel. So what now? I wonder how much of the feeling is that, and also the feeling of waking up and for years having this thing that you're striving for a purpose and then you wake up the next morning and it's no longer there and then when you blend those two things together it just creates this compound effect yeah the perfect storm so yeah the this is a pervasive phenomenon and uh, take the example of uh, someone who's unhappy as a as a child unhappy as a, as a young adult but but has a goal has a dream to become, say, a movie star. You know, let's take the the most probably admired, respected, and rewarded of all uh, stardoms. And um, and you know, for many years, uh, you know, he's uh, weighing tables at restaurants, but he's constantly sustained by the belief that uh, once he makes it, then then he'll be happy. And then eventually, years later, year after years of uh, pain and suffering, uh, he makes it. And he's ecstatic, elated, happier than he had ever been before. And, uh, you know, for, the, for, for a month, for two months, for, for a year, uh, you know, it, it could not be better because now he can have uh, any uh, you know, man or woman he, he wants because he's admired, revered, because now he can buy anything he wants. He's wealthy. He has it all. And then after a year, 
suddenly the knot that perhaps he had or the dis-ease that he experienced returns because it inevitably does. And now he's lost because at least before he had the hope that once he makes it, then he'll be happy. But he made it. And again, he realizes there is no there there. You know, the difference between sadness and depression is that depression is sadness without hope. Before he had hope, now he no longer has hope. And he realizes that he cannot find happiness in this reality. So he looks for answers outside of reality. What's outside of reality? Well, it could be alcohol or drugs or the ultimate exit from reality, which is suicide. And this is why we have so many very successful people uh, putting an end to their lives or turning to, to drugs and alcohol. Because the model that they that they had, the model that we were taught from a, a very young age, just uh, disintegrated, fell apart. And there is no good alternative model that is, that is out there uh, for them to grasp on. Yeah. The, um, when I, I want to actually go into, um, like what would a new model look like? You know, if, if we were to reimagine, what are the contributing factors to happiness? Let's talk about some of those things, but before we get there, I think it actually makes sense to ask, ask a more fundamental question, which is when we talk about happiness, what are we actually talking about? You know, there are uh, many definitions to happiness. Uh, some people have given up on trying to define it and they're, they simply say, well, it's like beauty. You know, you can't define it, but you know it when you see it or you know it when you experience it. I'm not of that uh, school of thought. I think it is important to define happiness because uh, once we define it, it can help us find it, achieve it. You know, there's a lovely line, uh, the Cheshire Cat in uh, Alice in Wonderland, where she uh, asks the Cheshire Cat, you know, where should I go? And he says, well, that depends on where you want to get to. And then she says, well, I don't know where I want to get to. And then he says, well, then it doesn't matter where you go. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think it is important to, to know where we're going, to define uh, our path. So my definition of happiness comprises five elements. The first element of happiness is spiritual well-being. Spiritual well-being, very briefly, can of course come from religion, uh, but it doesn't have to. It can come from a, a sense of meaning and purpose in life or from being present to whatever it is that we're experiencing, to the miracle of existence. So meaning and presence are the two elements of a spiritual life. Um, physical well-being, the second element of happiness, is about uh, regular physical exercise, about movement, about sleep, about nutrition, of course. These are important elements of happiness. Then there is um, intellectual well-being. You know that there is research showing that being curious, asking questions, learning constantly and consistently doesn't just uh, make us happier. It also makes us healthier. In fact, contributes to longevity, being a lifelong learner. Uh, so that's intellectual well-being, engaging with uh, texts or with nature or with a work of art. That's intellectual well-being. Then there is uh, relational well-being, interpersonal relationships, also relationship with oneself. The number one predictor of happiness is quality time we spend with people we care about and who care about us. 
And finally, there is emotional well-being. Emotional well-being is about dealing with painful emotions, sadness, anger, envy, anxiety, and also cultivating pleasurable emotions like joy, like gratitude, like love, like excitement. So these five elements, spiritual, physical, intellectual, relational, and emotional well-being that make up the acronym SPIRE are the building blocks of happiness. Now, it doesn't mean we need to have it all. That would be overwhelming to even think about uh, having it all. But it does mean that given that we are a system, uh, a whole uh, system, we can find an in towards increasing levels of happiness through any one, any and all of these five elements. So we can meditate or we can exercise or we can uh, engage in learning uh, or we can uh, invest more in our relationships or express gratitude. I mean, these are all powerful, impactful ways of increasing levels of happiness, especially if we practice them consistently and constantly. So ritualizing them is, of course, important. Yeah, and I want to... Um... I want to dive into some of those in a bit more detail. Curiosity uh, came to me as you're sharing that when you describe these five elements, uh, the, the second word in each one of the qualifiers is, is well-being. Having spent some time with uh, some of the research on uh, happiness and money over time, it's been interesting to see that you know, one of the big illusions was that you know, we thought that for every dollar earned, you know, there would be x percent more happiness and and in fact you know that peaks out at a certain level of income but what was interesting for me to see was uh, and you're, you're going to be much more familiar with the details of this research than i am but i do recall seeing a follow-up wave of research that then looked at a vastly larger global data set and looked at the relationship between income and not just happiness but they broke out as a separate measure subjective well-being and they looked at them as two distinct things and what they found from my recollection is that there is this leveling off, you know, and I think in the U.S. it was around $75,000 a year in income, something like that, where it didn't matter how much more you made. Happiness pretty much just flatlined. But subjective well-being continued in a linear relationship up with every dollar more that you made. The data set stopped at around a quarter million dollars a year, so they didn't go beyond that. So I'm curious what you feel is the relationship between these things. Yes, so the relationship between money and happiness is um, that money matters up to a certain point. So that point is essentially where you feel like your basic needs are met, whether it's for shelter, for uh, food, of course, for education. Beyond that, money doesn't make um, that much of a difference to your happiness levels unless uh, you know how to spend it wisely. Now, specifically, there are two ways that we know we can spend money wisely. One is on experiences rather than things. And two, it's on giving. And let me elaborate a little bit on, on each one of those. So there were, they asked people, what do you think will make you happier? Buying, you know, if you have discretionary income, you know, say $10,000. Would it be on um, uh, upgrading your car thing or, you know, going on a vacation with your loved ones? 
And most people said, well, we think uh, a car, you know, if that is something that I want, would make me happier because a vacation is over in two weeks. A car I'll have three years from now. Well, it turns out that their intuition was, was wrong and that uh, a vacation, an experience, actually yielded more long-term happiness. In most cases, again, this is, of course, uh, average generalization, but in most cases, it yielded more happiness than buying a thing because a thing you get used to, you adapt to. You know, you're excited about the car initially and then very quickly it just becomes a car, another car that you own. Unless you're, uh, you know, a car expert or, or, or a racer and then you have experiences with the car. Uh, but in most cases, when it's about something, uh, we get tired of it. We, we, or even if we don't get tired of it, we stop noticing it. It's the novelty that's important. As uh, Daryl Bem, a Cornell psychologist said, the exotic is erotic. Uh, but once it becomes uh, you know, an everyday uh, occurrence, it's less exciting. Whereas with experiences, what you're doing, you are uh, cultivating relationships. Because uh, again, I'm talking about most vacations. Some vacations mean the end of relationships, of course. But in most cases, it strengthens the, uh, the, the, the connections among people. And that is uh, a very important uh, predictor antecedent of happiness. So that's uh, one element. Choose experiences over things once basic needs are met, of course. The second element is uh, giving. So, so I'll share a, a study. And actually, I'm bringing together a, a few studies into one here. Um, this was done through a joint University of British Columbia, Canada, and Harvard Business School uh, research. And what they did was they brought in people to a lab and they measured their levels of happiness. And then they gave them a nice sum of money. And then they said to them, go spend this money on yourself. Go buy yourself something. And they did. And they bought themselves a gadget or shoes or whatever. And then they came back to the lab and they measured their levels of happiness again. And what they found was that their happiness levels went up significantly as a result of the shopping spree. You know, this is important research. This is the first time in recorded history that we have scientific evidence for Carrie Bradshaw's claim from Sex and the City that buying shoes makes you happier. So that's good so far. Not so good if we go a little further. A day later, they went back to the lab and they measured their levels of happiness again. What did they find? They were right back where they started. In other words, there was a shopper's high that lasted less than 24 hours. Second part of the same study, they bring in a, another group of people and they measure their levels of happiness. And once again, they give them the exact same amount of money that they gave the first group. And once again, they tell them, go spend this money. Only this time they tell them, go spend it on someone else. Now, spending it on someone else can be, you know, buying homeless people meals. It could be donating it to your favorite charity. It could be buying a, a colleague or a friend shoes. Go spend it on someone else. And then they go back to the lab and they measure their levels of happiness. What do they find? Happiness levels go up to the same degree as the shoppers with one very big difference. A day later, when they measured their levels of happiness again, it did go down slightly, but it was still significantly higher than base level. Even after a week, they saw the impact, the positive impact for well-being of giving. So to give 
in so many ways is to receive. You know, my, um, my mother tongue is not English. English is my second language. My mother tongue is Hebrew. And uh, in Hebrew, and this is a biblical word, in Hebrew, the word forgiving is Natan. And uh, Natan, like the name Nathan, that's the biblical uh, name. And if you spell Natan, whether you do it in, in Hebrew or you do it with Roman letters, it's a palindrome. So N-A-T-A-N, or in Hebrew, Nun Taf Nun. You would read it the same left to right and right to left. No coincidence here. There is a, a deep meaning uh, to, to this word because today, this is uh, verified by a lot of research, we know that when we give, we're given right back with interest. Mm, yeah, the, uh, the giver's glow. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lumi. So listen, we have all had those awkward moments where a BO strikes at the worst possible time. I'm often actually out in nature when I'm exercising, so I don't even notice it when I'm out. And then I walk in the door, kind of start to wrinkle my nose, and then I'm like, oh, wait a minute, that's actually me. That is why I'm so thankful I discovered Lumi Whole Body Deodorant. This revolutionary product, it was actually invented by an OBGYN who wanted a solution for her patients struggling with private odor. But Lumi doesn't just work, quote, down there. It provides incredible 72-hour protection for your entire body using mandelic acid. I kid you not, this stuff is a game changer. Lumi is safe and effective for pits, for feet, you name it. And as someone who's tried it, I can attest that it seriously works. The fresh scents are just an added bonus. So if you're ready to say goodbye to BO for good, try Lumi's starter pack. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash, and deodorant wipes and free shipping. As a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with the code GOODLIFE at lumideodorant.com. Don't miss your chance to experience the relief of true full body freshness. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com or just click the link in the show notes and use the code GOODLIFE. 
Good Life Project is sponsored by Quince. So my wife actually originally introduced me to Quince because she loves their clothing and I have been hooked ever since. I literally lived in their Mongolian cashmere ribbed beanie and pullover hoodie pretty much all winter. And as the weather warms up, I wanted more breathable summer pieces without overpaying. And Quince has just the super high quality items like linen shirts, performance polos, activewear at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman to pass savings to customers. Actually just ordered a new European linen long sleeve button down shirt. Super excited to get that. And I'm always just so amazed at how they can keep their prices so affordable while the quality remains really high. So if you're looking to upgrade your wardrobe, I highly recommend you try Quince. Go to quince.com GLP for free shipping on your order and a 365-day return. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash G-L-P to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash G-L-P or just click the link in the show notes. Trust me, your wardrobe will thank you. You know, it's interesting when, when you think about giving, it makes sense when, especially when you sort of explain the, the reciprocal energy, that it would feel good. I remember sitting down with Adam Grant a couple of years back. We were talking about something similar. You know, he's done a whole bunch of work on how giving affects different people in different ways. And, and he was actually citing, I think it was um, Sonia Lubomirsky, who did this work because I think counterintuitively, I think very often, tell me if I have this right, we feel like well, if we give a little bit every day, then we can kind of keep that giver's glow going for a long time. And yes, it's good for other people and it's better for us. But is it true, in fact, that the research showed that, in fact, that if you actually cluster your giving in something like one day a week, that it actually has a stronger effect? Yes. So this is uh, Sonia Lubomirsky's uh, research on giving. And what she did was uh, she had a control group, of course, that didn't give. And then she had two um, experimental groups. One group gave five times during the week, and the other group gave five times on one day of the week. And yes, she found uh, more impact for those who concentrated their giving. And uh, you know, I've, I've I've often wondered why that is, and and what I think it could be is that um, that giving on one day, you know, gave you sort of a, a strong dose of the value of giving. Now, that means strong motivation to do it again. So that could very well have created an upward spiral through very strong emotion. I mean, look at the connection between the word emotion, motion, and motivation. They all come from the same root. And um, it's when we have strong emotions that we are driven to motion, that we have motivation. Perhaps do it again and again and again. So we're creating an upward spiral of giving. And, uh, you know, I, I do a lot of, uh, I've done a lot of thinking and reflecting on this upward spiral of thinking for a slightly different reason. You know, the field of uh, positive psychology or the science of happiness often comes under attack for being a selfish or for uh, supporting a selfish pursuit uh, because, you know, I want to be happier. That's why I'm taking a course on happiness. That's why I'm reading this book. And this is selfish. And you know, why are you being selfish in a world that needs uh, selflessness, not selfishness, uh, certainly today? But this is a false dichotomy because 
there's a lot of research showing that when we give others, we feel better about ourselves. That's just one side of the equation, though. There is also research showing that when we cultivate our own happiness, we're much more likely to give. So potentially, we can create an upward spiral between giving to self and giving to others. Because giving to others is also giving to ourselves. And when we give to ourselves, we're more likely to give to others. And it's this upward spiral that I think it's very important to understand uh, in order to create a synthesis between the selfish camp and the selfless camp. And the synthesis, to my mind, could be called selffulness rather than selfishness or selflessness. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. I'm fascinated by your um, hypothesis about why that once a week might sort of uh, be more effective at the, the sprinkling approach every day too. It's almost like it's a, a bit more of a, a slingshot up into that broaden and build spiral um, rather than have kind of simmering at the bottom, you know, like a little bit every day. It never quite launches into the momentum. Yeah, and again, so that, that's a great metaphor. The metaphor that I was thinking of as you were speaking was, you know, maybe uh, it's diluted in, uh, you know, in, in, in a sea of uh, maybe not unkindness, but in a sea of uh, banal experiences and, and it disappears. So it doesn't, uh, it's not recognized, it's not felt as much. Yeah. The, the other thing that you mentioned in terms of the relationship to money and happiness and and on the spending side well a lot of it is you know, like there are two ways that we can sort of give was this distinction between experiences and stuff you know i'm going to get something versus i'm going to invest in an experience and and the relational nature of experiences and how that may well be at the heart of why it's more effective part of my curiosity around this too i'm fascinated to hear your thoughts is when you get something well, let's say it's a car using your example, you're driving that car every day, you have it over a longer period of time. So you have this long sustained opportunity to habituate to just having it, it just doesn't affect you anymore. Most experiences, you know, if you go on a vacation, or you go on a really cool adventure, or those are usually these short hits, you know, in the context of your life, it's a day or a week, or maybe a month, if you're really fortunate. So I wonder if part of what's going on is that you have a, a much greater opportunity to habituate to the thing, the thing that you buy, whereas you don't have that to the experience because it's much more fleeting. I'm, I'm curious how that lands with you. Yeah, so habituation absolutely plays a role here. Uh, Daniel Kahneman talks about the hedonic treadmill, uh, you know, again, enjoying this car initially, but then losing interest to a great extent. And this habituation is important. It's actually a survival mechanism. Because uh, if we didn't habituate, then it would mean we, we wouldn't habituate to painful experiences either. And then we wouldn't be able to, to survive for long in, in all likelihood, because most people experience um, very difficult losses, whether it's a loss of a person, first and foremost, or a, a loss of identity, or, uh, or, or a job, or a relationship. Um, and these losses would be, they are devastating. They would be insurmountable if we didn't habituate. So that's the upside, so to speak, of habituation that we can uh, habituate to the downside of life. But, you know, there, it's a double-edged sword. We also habituate to the good things. And, and 
we can certainly prolong enjoyment of, uh, of things by being more mindful of the experiences, by expressing gratitude more regularly for the experience. But, but ultimately, habituation takes place. Um, whereas when we go on vacation, you know, we can go to, um, you know, Cancun uh, one year and uh, go to the, you know, Catskills the next year, or we can diversify. And, um, and this uh, will diminish the likelihood of, uh, of habituation. In other words, increase the likelihood that we will continue deriving uh, the, uh, what I've come to call the ultimate currency, the currency of happiness from these experiences. Yeah, I, I wonder if sometimes also, um, to a certain extent, you can game that impulse, you know? Um, but there's, like you said, there, there are these sort of unfolding levels of, of good and bad, you know, it is a double-edged sword. Whereas, you know, the notion that, well, what if you extended that vacation to a year or to a lifetime with the same person or a group of people, would you then habituate to those people in a way where you started looking for the shiny new friend group, the shiny new partner in life? simply because you've had a longer time to sort of like go back to a baseline and you're not getting that, that same hit, which would be a devastating thing, you know? And I feel like some of the other things that you've mentioned are ones where, you know, because I think we don't particularly care if we habituate to a car or a thing, but we do care if we habituate to the people that we say we hold dear in our lives, we don't want that relationship to end. So I wonder in, in circumstances like that, you know, how, what are the things that we do to counter that sort of innate impulse? Yes. So, um, you know, one, one of the uh, thought experiments that I often uh, run in my class is the following. You know, I say to them, imagine that you're, uh, so first of all, I have a poll in the class and I ask them, so who is the, uh, you know, the, the sexiest, most attractive man? in the world and you know they vote on it and you know it's a different person every year and then who's this sexiest most attractive woman in the world and and they vote on it and changes and then i say to them okay so now imagine that your sexiest man woman alive um is not just that good looking and attractive also kind generous and totally heads over heels in love with you and uh, you know he she's is smart interesting curious so you know anything you ask for you get in that one person and uh you get together and uh you have uh you you know you, uh, a lustful loveful relationship and you're together for 5 years um and basically you live happily ever after and then after those 5 years a psychologist comes in and runs an experiment. And the experiment is to measure your uh, physiological uh, excitement, levels of arousal when a person walks into a room. And you know, you're hooked up to all these, you know, electrodes, uh, um, you know, uh, your head, your heart, your um, what's called galvanic skin response to your hand, you see how much you're sweating from excitement uh, when the person comes in. And, um, and your uh, beloved, your perfect uh, lover partner comes in. Um, and then uh, all the measures are taken. Then five minutes later, uh, a person whom you find attractive, moderately, moderately attractive, comes in. 
where will you be more excited? And the answer physiologically in most cases is with the second person. And, um, you know, many people find this um, disturbing because what does this say? Does this mean that, you know, monogamous relationships ought to be out of the window that, you know, you can't really sustain, well, you can't sustain lust or love. And uh, the answer is no. There are ways to enjoy lifelong intimate relationships. Uh, and again, I'm not here to judge uh, um, uh, monogamy, polygamy, you know, each her to, to his, her own. Um, but what I am saying is that those who do choose to be with one person and do want to go on that metaphorical vacation for the rest of their lives, it is possible to find happiness there. However, it takes work. And the kind of work that it takes is um, investing in the relationship, uh, doing uh, the same things that work and doing new things and experimenting and trying things and opening up uh, gradually, but consistently uh, becoming more and more intimate over time. And the reason why we know this is true is because there are such relationships. They exist, they're not the majority, but they're out there. And the fact that there are such relationships changes the question from, is it possible to enjoy lifelong uh, happiness with one person to how is it possible to do it? Because some people do do it. Most generally, it is, as I said, about work. And there is a common misconception here because most people believe that um, once you find your perfect partner, you're ready to live happily ever after. That's a, that's a misconception and, uh, and a dangerous one for long-term happiness. You know, imagine this. Imagine um, for years you had been looking for your perfect job. And after years and years of searching, you find your perfect job. Where it's just, just the right fit for you. Exactly what you wanted to do, what you were looking for your entire life. A Monday morning comes and you, your first day of work, you go in to your office. You sit down and you put your feet up on your mahogany desk and you say to yourself, I found it. I have arrived. And you stay there and you revel in your success, in your happiness. And you stay there more and more, just reveling enjoying just the accomplishment of having found your perfect ideal job. Before you know it, you'll be fired. Why? Because you need to start working. Not only that, you want to start working. And you do. And you invest more time and more effort than you ever had before. Because this is exactly what you wanted to do with your life. And yet, when it comes to relationship, our model is radically different. Yes, we look for the right partner and everyone invests in looking for the right person. Um, you sometimes have to kiss many frogs and, uh, before you find your uh, prince or princess and you find them. And then what happens? You live happily ever after or so you hope and think and believe and that's how you act. Part of the problem comes from movies because that's how movies are created, constructed. You know, the partners recognize, see each other. They, you know, feel something, but then there is conflict throughout the movie. And then towards the end of the movie, 
you know, uh, they kiss, they make love, and they live happily ever after. The screen comes down. The problem is that love begins where movies end. And it's the hard work after the falling in love that is the essential ingredient of uh, lifelong happiness with a partner. So investment is essential, indispensable to long-term happiness. Yeah, I, I, I love that. It's interesting. Um, I'm very fortunate to be married to somebody who I love dearly. And you know, we, we work together and we live together and we've been married for um, over 20 years. And just recently, we actually, um, I think it was last year, John and Julie Gottman came out with this book called Eight Dates, which, you know, ostensibly, as you set up eight dates, where you talk about very specific subjects, oftentimes challenging ones. And we looked at that and we thought to ourselves, you know, we've been together, together now, you know, the better part of three decades, married, you know, over two, you know, okay, we'll try it, but we know each other. And we sat down. And we did the work and we're like, wow, there is still so much, not just so much work to do, but so much more to learn, so much more to discover, you know, and, and also that you, know, you, you step back into the fact that you are not the same person that you were a decade ago or two decades ago. And sometimes you don't share your own inner evolution because there's so much comfort with that other person. And it's really, it's, it's such a stunning gift to be able to actually consciously devote energy to doing that work. Um, and the outcome is really is staggering, but I agree, you know, the, that, that is the myth is, you know, the, the curtain goes down and that's it. Yeah. You know, the Gothmans are, are great re researchers on, uh, on relationships and, you know, I teach their work and then there is someone else whose work I teach and that is David Schnarch. And David Schnarch has a, a wonderful book, a book that uh, I owe a lot to by the name of Passionate Marriage. David Schnarch in the book talks about long-term committed relationships and how, uh, how they can not just last, but flourish and get better over the years. And one of his key ideas, not the only, but one of the key ideas is that the most important part of healthy long-term relationship is not what most people think. Most people would say it's about learning to validate one another. And validation is important and uh, you know, acceptance and unconditional regard of the other is important. But he said that's not the most important thing. He said rather than being validated, we need to seek to know and to be known to know and to be known. Why? Because it's through knowing and being known that we cultivate intimacy. And intimacy is the foundation of passion. And if we are to sustain passion, not the um, relatively superficial one that perhaps we experience on the first date or, or first year even, the honeymoon phase, um, but passion that is deep and uh, transcendent almost. And that is what couples can experience after 20 years or even 40 years. Mm. The key though is not validation. The key is learning to know and to be known. Mm. I love that. Um, and now I have a new book for my reading list. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much. 
But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When we were talking a little bit earlier, um, and you were sort of laying out these are the five elements of happiness, the way that you talk about happiness, meaning was a part of that. And I, I'm fascinated by, by meaning. Um, you know, w- when I look at the average midlife crisis, you know, it's not a crisis of money or power or even happiness in my mind. It's an existential crisis. It's a crisis of meaning. You know, and you look at the work of Viktor Frankl and people in that sort of whole canon. Um, and I'm, I'm fascinated by the question of, can you be happy without having a significant source of meaning? And is meaningfulness a stronger measure of a life well-lived than happiness? Or, or is it a false dichotomy? Yes. So I was going to start with uh, the end first. Yes, I do think it's a false dichotomy because uh, meaning is part of happiness. It's not the whole of happiness, but it's part of it. And uh, let me give an extreme example that, at least to me, uh, illustrates why they're not one and the same. You know, Viktor Frankl uh, wrote about finding meaning in a concentration camp. You know, he spent time in Auschwitz, uh, hell, hell on earth. Um, and yet he found meaning and other inmates found meaning. But to suggest that they were happy in the concentration camp uh, would be, I think, uh, a real stretch and absurd. So they're not one and the same. You also need uh, an element of uh, basic pleasure to, to experience happiness, or at least the absence of suffering to experience happiness. The thing, though, is can you experience happiness without meaning? And my argument is that you cannot. 
that we need to have meaning. However, it's about understanding the full gamut uh, or the full continuum of what it means to find meaning. Viktor Frankl himself makes an important distinction between the meaning of life and the meaning in life. So the meaning of life is uh, basically answers the question, uh, why am I here? What's my ultimate purpose? Many people find it in uh, religion. Uh, many people find it in uh, serving others. Um, many people find it in uh, serving uh, Mother Earth, you know, in uh, the environmentalist movement. You know, this is a, a big purpose. This is the meaning of life. This is why, why I was brought here. Um, however, there is also meaning in life. And meaning in life lowers the bar and in a healthy and important way. Two reasons. First of all, not everyone finds the meaning of life. And that doesn't mean that they can't experience meaning in their life. And second, even people who do find for themselves the meaning of life, that doesn't mean that at every moment in their life they're connected to that sense of purpose. So we need to lower the bar to, uh, to a meaningful life. And um, how do we do that? It's by looking for meaning in our everyday experiences, in the mundane. It's finding the extraordinary in the ordinary. So this is a work that Adam Grant and others did about how we can uh, reframe our current experiences. Amy Wisniewski, Jane Dutton, who had worked with Adam when he was uh, in Michigan, uh, they have done work showing that even um, janitors in, in, in hospitals can find a sense of purpose, meaning a calling in the work that they do day in and day out. Um, the question is uh, certainly, you know, teachers can, business people can, um, hairdressers, engineers, every profession that they researched, they found that there were people who were able to find a sense of meaning and purpose in what they were doing. The question is, how can we raise levels of awareness about it? You know, my business partner, uh, Angus Ridgway uh, spent many years at McKinsey and you know, we work together in the field of uh, leadership development through uh, Potential Life. And uh, recently he was having uh, lunch with his, with his uh, brother-in-law. And uh, his brother-in-law is a cardiologist and his work, his expertise is uh, pacemakers. So basically what he does is put pacemakers in and every few years he takes it out and changes batteries and, and puts it back in. So when they were having lunch, Angus said to him, you know, I finally figured out what you do for a living. Uh, so his brother-in-law curiously asks, what? Uh, and Angus says, you change batteries for a living. And, uh, you know, his, uh, his brother, uh, just to give you some background, Angus is British. This is British humor. <laughs> uh, his brother-in-law looked at him intently, uh, did not even smile. And he said, Angus, you are right. Some days I change batteries. Other days I save lives. So the exact same experience can be interpreted in radically different ways. If I'm a school teacher, you know, I can see my work as a grind. Again, I have to deal with these uh, uh, young um 
you know, inconsiderate students. Uh, again, I have to teach the same material that I taught last year, or I can think about my work as uh, cultivating the young minds of the future, of creating a better world. Same work, very different interpretation. And it turns out that interpretation uh, can make all the difference. This is about finding the meaning in life, mm. if not the meaning of life. No, I, I love that it, it, because it's accessible to anyone and everyone. Like you said, the bigger question of, you know, like even you know, singular purpose or life purpose, you know, I, I, I actually really hate that phrase, but the, just the notion that there is this one thing out there and that, you know, we are destined to find it. Well, maybe somebody does stumble upon it, but a lot of people never will. But this notion of meaning in life, that on any given moment of any given day, you can find a sense of purpose in so many things, even when it's not apparent, when you actually really examine it. So powerful to me. I, I have two friends that both teach middle school and, and one of them kind of ruins the day <laughs> because it is you know, known as the toughest age of any kid that you could possibly teach. And it's kind of brutal. They're struggling. They don't know themselves. And, and the other one is, is like, this is the best possible season in a human being's life to be there when they're like just trying to figure out which way is up and who they are. And yes, it's brutal and yes, it's hard. And yes, it takes so much work, but to, to have the opportunity to make an impact at that moment in their process of, of self-discovery and revelation is such a gift. And, and it's just what you're talking about. You know, it's the frame that you bring to an experience that allows you to find that sense of meaning or purpose or not. You know, as, uh, as, as you're talking, I think there is a, a recurring theme in, in some of the things that, that, that we were discussing. And the recurring theme may sound to many like a compromise or, or a cop-out or an unnecessary concession, but I think it's important. And the theme is lowering the bar. It's lowering the bar on what constitutes a meaningful life. It's lowering the bar on what constitutes a, uh, a romantic relationship. It's uh, lowering the bar on what constitutes a healthy, uh, a healthy relationship in that, uh, or, or what is love. And that goes to the work of Barbara Fredrickson about, you know, what is love? Uh, and that it's not just that uh, one in a lifetime thing that you find, that you can actually cultivate it with, with many people if you put the work in. So lowering the bar, whether it's on love, whether it's on meaning, uh, whether it's on happiness, I think is important. Making it more realistic rather than uh, uh, detached from reality. Mm. Yeah, and like you said, there is, I have no doubt that some people will hear that invitation and think, why would I ever want to lower the bar in my life? I want to strive to be the best, to experience the most, to really, to just have it at the highest possible level. And in fact, really coming full circle to the early part of our conversation, when you look at how people experience life, when that is the ultimate aspiration, even when they achieve it, it's, it doesn't make them feel the way that they felt. And yet they sacrifice so much more to be able to get to that place. Yes, they, they sacrifice a lot and inevitably, inevitably they'll experience frustration. If we, if we set the bar unrealistically high, unrealistically high, then no matter what we achieve in reality, 
we will be disappointed. And again, this is not about compromising on our um, ability to flourish, far from it. It's about understanding our nature and then taking this nature into consideration, making the most of it. Yeah, it occurs to me also through this entire conversation that when we kind of zoom the lens out, the ability to the ability to, to focus on any of these things, to be intentional about any of them, is based on a sort of the, a meta skill of awareness. You know, we, we we can't make any of these decisions. We can't adopt any of these points of view or 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 embrace any actions or practices unless and until we have some level of awareness of who we are and where we are at any given moment in time. Yeah, uh, awareness is is critical. You know, it, it relates to a topic that I've been thinking a lot about recently, which is what I've come to call rhetorical choices. And rhetorical choices are similar to rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question is a question where the answer is obvious. It's asked for effect. So, you know, if I ask my son, do you want daddy to be angry? You know, I'm not expecting him to, you know, think about it for a while and say, uh, uh, you know, the answer is obvious. Um, or do you want to be happy? You know, it's, it's, it's obvious. It's a rhetorical question. Similarly, we have rhetorical choices. For example, if I ask you, Jonathan, so um, do you want to appreciate the good things in your life? Or do you want to take the good things in your life for granted? You know, it's a no-brainer. It's, uh, it's obvious. You ask any person this question, they will say, yeah, of course I don't want to take for granted the good things in my life. Uh, and yet, most people, most of the time, take the good things in their lives for granted. Not because they don't know what the right choice is, but simply because they are not aware, they're not mindful of the fact that at every moment in their lives, they can actually choose. So making them more aware of the fact that they have this choice, bringing it to the fore of your consciousness through awareness, through mindfulness, is the necessary uh, prerequisite of practicing the right choice, the rhetorical choice, the choice that will make you happier. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. You know, reflecting on the way that you have brought yourself, your work, your curiosity, inquiry, and research to the world, you know, much of your early days, it happened in the classroom. You taught for you know quite a while at, at Harvard, spoken to numerous organizations around the world. And it seems like you you have sort of like continued to create this expanding ripple of ways to get the message out. The most recent of which, and, and tell me if this is wrong, but from what I understand is this Happiness Studies Academy, which really says, okay, so let's take the world of positive psychology and bring in all sorts of other schools of thought draw from them all, and then create teaching experiences for people. I'm curious about how this came to be and what your intention is with it. Yes, yeah, so um, the Happiness Studies Academy essentially came to be uh, five years, five and a half years ago when I was uh, on a flight, a transatlantic flight. And you know, Jonathan, those states where you're, uh, when we used to fly back when, uh, when you're uh, very tired, uh, but too uncomfortable to fall asleep. So I was, I was in one of those states when a question came to mind. And the question was, how is it 
that there is a field of study for psychology, which is my field, a field of study for uh, history, uh, biology, medicine, education, business, you name it. But there is no field of study for happiness. So yeah, there is positive psychology, but that's just the psychology of happiness. What about what uh, philosophers had to say about happiness? Uh, Lao Tzu, Confucius, uh, Aristotle. What about what uh, uh, historians had to say? Economists. Uh, how about uh, what you know? Our great books in literature. You know, Marianne Evans or Shakespeare have to say about happiness. Uh, Chinua Kebe. What about um, what neuroscientists have to say about happiness? Why isn't there a field, or rather, an interdisciplinary field of study that brings together what all these? different disciplines, fields, have to say about happiness. And I resolved on that flight to help create a field of happiness studies that brings together philosophy and economics and, and, and neuroscience and biology and history and film and literature and bring these together to um, shed light on uh, arguably life's chief pursuit, if I were to quote David Hume. And um, three years later, I co-founded the Happiness Studies Academy uh, with the purpose of uh, bringing these ideas to, to different people. And we have a certificate program, which is a year-long journey, uh, where uh, students answer two questions. The first question, how can I become happier? The second question, how can I help others? become happier. So again, this is the uh, self-reinforcing loop of, uh, of generosity, of self-fullness. And uh, we have students from over 60 countries around the world. We teach it in, uh, in different languages. And uh, this is what provides me with so much happiness to work with students who are keen to bring about more happiness, more well-being, spiritually, physically, intellectually, relationally, and emotionally. Whether it's in uh, schools where they teach, uh, homes where they um, build a family, uh, among their friends and community, the workplace, uh, in, in hospitals, in uh, the therapeutic relationship, in coaching, uh, you name it. Because uh, happiness is important wherever and whenever we are. Mm. And that feels like a pretty good place for us to uh, come full circle as well, because I agree with all of that. So sitting here in this container of Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? Give yourself the permission to be human. Give yourself the permission to experience the full range of human emotions, the painful as well as the pleasurable. And um, by doing so, you fulfill your potential for happiness, not by rejecting emotions, not by ignoring difficulties and hardships, by being real, by being authentic, by being fully human. Mm, thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E. Or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.